Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's episode of Motherfuck Horror is brought to you by the show's supporters and Patreon. Patreon supporters get access to a range of bonus features and other benefits, as well as the pleasure of keeping the Motherfuck Horror podcast coming to you every week. Patreon supporters such as Jason Wade and Kirsten Nelson have brought the show to you today. Karamil Malkov, Jason August Kirsten. And now, the show. of Podcast Network. Welcome to Mother Folklore, a podcast of words, Irish, Irish words, and words from Ireland. I'm Derek O'Shea. I'm thrilled today to talk to a very special guest, someone I've wanted to have on the show for a while, about back back, back in late 2018, uh, Cloda and I did an episode on a Scots Gaelic book that I found, which is all called On Lua which is a book on transgressive uh, Scots Gaelic verse. One of the poems in particular, uh, we read, we read out on the episode. It got a huge response. It also got a huge response when I shared it on Twitter. Uh, it, it's translated title is I, I Dreamt With You Last Night. The poet was Niall O'Gallagher. He is on board Vala Glasgow, which is the the um, poet in residence in the Gaelic language for the city of Glasgow. He is my guest today. Fáil Janelle. Gramagadach. How are you getting on today? Fine. Really fine. I mean... Everybody's safe, everybody's healthy. It's been quite intense for the past wee while because my wife and I have been working at home with two small kids, but nothing to complain about. Everything's fine. How have you managed uh, straddling your writing, your your day day job, uh, homeschooling, regular yeah, I, parenting? I, I, I think like, like, like most people, it's, it's been back to basics. I haven't really done much writing of poetry in the past four months while this has been happening, but that's been okay really because... I finished my new book on the last day of 2019, so the pressure's not really been on from that from that point of view. But it's really just really trying to juggle it between us, you know. So one of us would take one of the wains out on the bike, while the other tries to get through some schoolwork, and then everyone has to go into the front room. Well, I I work as a journalist, so I'd be on the radio, and then I'll be broadcasting in the next room while something else is happening in the back room. And I, th- I think everyone just has, it's just kind of muddling on, you know. And I've, I've kind of been saying you know to my colleagues uh, on uh, BBC Radio and Gale that if they hear the kids then that's just going to happen there's, there's no stopping <laughs> them you know like we've since they've been very small we've managed to stop them more or less 
for mm-hmm. making their debut on the morning news. Um, but one of these days it's going to happen and I'm just relaxed a bit now and people can't expect anything different like this <laughs> under these circumstances. So I have to ask you, obviously, as a, as a journalist, um, and during the during the pandemic when a lot of people have been broadcasting from home, uh, a, a strange trend has happened where people have uh, curated their bookshelves behind them to present themselves in a, in a highly intellectual, um, yet accessible yeah. kind of way. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I mean, I, I've been broadcasting in front of my bookshelves more or less every night on BBC Alipa, which is the kind of Scottish equivalent of TG Carr. And mm-hmm. um, that's where all the politics news has been coming from, is from my front room in front of these books. But I honestly haven't changed the books around much. I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. you, have to t- you take a few things off the shelf that are maybe family photos or you take away bits and pieces yeah. that are too personal. But basically, it's just my poetry bookshelf or my mm-hmm. Claire's poetry bookshelf. So I haven't really curated it. Maybe people were expecting that what you would see is lots of biographies and history and all this stuff, whereas it's just collected poems of Seamus Heaney and collected poems of Edward Morgan and et cetera, et cetera, you know. Um, so I come over as exactly what I am, which is a, 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 a poetry geek and someone who is quite bookish. But, uh, you know, that's just, in my case, and that's just me, you know. Because uh, obviously some people have uh, been, been talking away and people have scrutinised their bookshelves, interestingly. And now that we live in the age of the screen grab, uh, where people can zoom right in and say, look, this person has a has a biography of, of Mao Zedong. You know, we always knew they were, you know, <laughs> this way or inclined. And it's, and people have, and sometimes, yes, people read books by people they don't like. Um, but it's all been, it's been an interesting process. And some people have clearly, you know, curated their bookshelves in a, in a particular way to emphasise their own beliefs or to cultivate that but it's been it's been a funny phenomenon yeah the, the other thing is that the, the, the laptop that you're using to broadcast with on skype has to be kind of stood up on about six thick books so actually some of the nicest books are the ones you can't see they're the ones that are propping up the, the computer because they're the ones that are thick enough to actually do the job that's, that's, that's the funny thing because people said yes I've, I've, if, if people knew by the way these are the books that I'm, I'm, I'm stacking the laptop on and you, you, might, have, you, you might have all your kind of your, your poetry in the, in the shelf behind you and all your Jeffrey Archers under your laptop that's right that's right absolutely <laughs> <laughs> so now, now this is your this is your third collection is coming out this year and it, uh, you've, you've sent me some of the, some of the work inside it it's an exciting book with a definitely deserving of a wide audience you have chosen to write in Scots Gaelic and you you have made a very big point uh, to not translate your own work. This is something that is a position shared by one of our aunt's great poets, Billy Jenkinson. And I just wanted to know you, you've written about this, and what was do you want to explain your your position why you choose not to do this? Yeah, I mean, I don't go as far as Biddy Jenkinson, who I really admire a lot as a poet. I mean, Biddy's position is that she doesn't want her poetry translated into English in Ireland at all, mm-hmm. and I've not gone that far. I mean, I. I've been quite inspired by the approach that people like Gallery Press take and that poets like Nolan O'Gonnell have been able to do, where they write the poetry in Irish and then other poets do the translating. Yeah. Um, the issue is that in Scotland, that's just much harder to achieve because there are fewer people who are literate in Gaelic um, mm. who could do that. You know, fewer English language writers who have good enough Gaelic to be able to to do that work. I've been very, very lucky in that I've been able to work with some good friends who are excellent poets in both languages, Peter Mackay and Deborah Moffat. So they've translated a good number of my poems. Um, but I took the decision earlier on when I started doing this that I wasn't going to translate my own work. And there's, there's so many reasons for it. You know, some of them are kind of small p political, which are about saying, you know, every poem that I translate myself into English is one fewer reason for people to learn Gaelic, you know. Um, yeah. And I don't really want to be part of that, part of giving people fewer reasons to learn this language that I love. 
Um, but others are more kind of kind of practical in terms of going about writing poetry. And I think that for me, if I'm writing a poem, especially the way I write poems, which I'm quite old-fashioned, I like to rhyme and mm-hmm. have regular meter and so on. I think if I was writing those poems, knowing I was going to have to rewrite them in English when I was finished, that would be just really, you know, oppressive, really limiting. Yes. Because instead of going for the best rhyme in Gaelic, I'd be going for the thing that I thought was going to work in two languages. I just think that's an impossible test for any poem to pass. Um, And there are friends of mine. I mean, Peter Mackay is a good example. He does do that. He works in both languages. And to him, it's a straitjacket the way that a straitjacket is a straitjacket for Houdini. You know, it's just a, it's a pretext to this display of skill and, and so yes. on. Um, but my point is just that it shouldn't be forced on people. I think mm-hmm. that if we're going to have this position of equality between these languages, then we need to be able to say, no, I'm going to write this poem in the language I'm going to write it in. These are the words I'm going to write it in. Um, mm-hmm. And leave it at that. And actually, you know, that was a, a position when I, when I started out. Um, but since then, it's, it's really not been a problem because I've been able to find readers and, you know, people have come to the poetry and, and people have translated the poetry. Um, so, it, you know, it hasn't kind of, in any way, I think, held the poems back in terms of them finding an audience. But it's also meant that I've been able just to get on with what I wanted to do um, instead of worrying all the time about how it was going to come over in English. For sure. And it's, I, I can really see that because I think when, when a poem can, can stand a, a number of different interpretations and when you're translating it yourself, you're, you're, you're picking one interpretation and Absolutely. it's, uh, Absolutely. And it, it, it contradicts the poet's greater mission. And I think also the you know, writing is such a solitary experience. The idea that, you know, to have somebody else do that translation as well. And as well, like that they, they can, they are basically kind of um, lifting you and you're lifting them by having that kind of a shared literary experience. That's something you don't, general writers generally don't get to have. I mean, it, it, the other thing about it as well is that I've also had um, poems translated into Irish. Oh, um, yes. So by Owen McElabrige, who is a, a very well-regarded short story writer. I'm sure that some listeners would, would, would know his name. And know his mm-hmm. work, and he's done wonderful Irish language versions of, of poems of mine, and, and that's quite fascinating because obviously I can read Irish, and that means that you're seeing two new versions of the same poem: one in Irish by Owen, one in English by Peter or Deborah, and they're different because they've yes. chosen different interpretations, or because the language they're using has pushed them in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And, and I think if again, if, if I'd have kind of preempted that by doing it myself, then you would have tied their hands, you yes. know. Whereas instead, if you just leave things as they are, at least in my experience, that's worked and that's allowed the poems to kind of go their own way. And you've translated Irish poems into Scots Gaelic too. I have. I did I did a lot of poems by Betty Jenkinson um, for the first number of a magazine called Stjall, which is a Scottish Gaelic creative writing magazine. And I look after poetry for, for that magazine. So I've done poems by Betty Jenkinson, which was great. And also in terms of, her position on translating. She's not against translating. She just doesn't want her poems translated into English in Ireland. She was yeah. very, very happy for me to translate them into Scottish Gaelic um, in Glasgow. You know, there, there really there was no issue there at all. I've also done poems by Seamus Barrow of um hmm. into, into Scottish Gaelic, which was really challenging because, I mean, I met Seamus years ago um, in Godor. We were reading at a festival there. Um, and his poetry and mine, they couldn't be further apart. I mean, he's, you know, spoken word artist and he's a slam poet and he's influenced by hip-hop 
um, mm-hmm. whereas my poems tend towards the more classical style, you know. Um, yeah. But it's good. The other thing that's good about translating other writers is that you're pushed out of your comfort zone a bit. You know, you're having to try and go, how did he do that? Um, yeah. And try and work back and, and redo it in another language and hopefully learn something along the way. Yeah, I, I was just look, reading some of uh, the work then. The, the the essay in which you, you explained your position about about not wanting to translate your own poetry. It was um, the English translation of, of that was was butterfly hunting, but it was Sjelg uh, Djarande. Was is that do I get any pronounce that's that right? Yeah, Sjelg Djarande. Yeah, Sjelg Djarande, and that is interesting because that is one Djarande is as a butterfly. That's one of the Scots Gaelic words that's different from it, its Irish equivalent. And for a lot of people, on one level, there's lots of similarities between Scots Gaelic and Irish, but there are differences too, and that's one of them. And it's probably some people listening who are wondering what's the like how how different would how different can an Irish and Scots Gaelic versions of the poem be? It's and obviously quite different. But what was that like translating Irish into Scots Gaelic? It's really difficult because. I mean, you don't have to go too far back until you're really dealing with one language, at least in mm-hmm. the literary tradition. And as, as a reader of poetry and as a, a writer of poetry, I'm constantly going back to yeah. earlier poetry. I mean, when you get back into the 1600s or before, from my perspective, you're not really talking about Irish or Scottish poetry. You're just talking about poetry that's Gaelic yeah. and which belongs to a tradition that is shared. You know, yes. it's in a literary language, which wasn't a language that anyone necessarily spoke. But, but a language that was used by by poets. Um, and so what's funny about it is the two languages are, are kind of, they overlap so much. Mm. And for example, when I was translating Biddy Jenkinson was hard because, I mean, obviously I, I speak Scottish Gaelic, right? But I'm not a, a walking dictionary, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't know all the words. <laughs> so <laughs> um, uh, there'd be a, a words that, that she would use in Irish. And just because I haven't heard an equivalent word in Scottish Gaelic doesn't mean it doesn't exist in the record of the language, you know? Yeah. So there's this there's this level of which every Irish word is potentially all, also a Scottish Gaelic word already, just one I haven't learned yet. Mm. Um, so that just adds in this extra complication. And then you, you kind of have to kind of draw this, make this decision about how close to the Irish am I going to keep it you know, and as someone with an Irish background like mine, who is always keen to emphasise the closeness rather than the difference of the two forms, yes, you're, you're kind of pushed instinctively in that direction. But at the same time, I want people to be able to read it. Um, and so you've got in your head, you've got the kind of day-to-day vernacular. So you've got to just make these choices and it's complicated, you know. But I suppose what translating is really about when it's from Irish to Scottish Gaelic is about saying, look at this, this is great. You really should read this. Uh, it's a kind of an activism in terms yes. of our readers and saying this is great poetry and maybe I can be some kind of a bridge you know between Irish language poetry and Scottish Gaelic poetry and point to the things that I'm reading just for pleasure in Irish and enjoying and, and kind of bring them over a bit I can really see that because even like I I, I wouldn't I, obviously I, I know Irish I don't know I don't know Scots Gaelic that well but when I read read your poems in translation I can see the English version then I look to see what well, what what must that word be in Scots Gaelic and then I can see the the words that I recognize and the words that I don't or the words that I recognize as being something else like once when you may say a heel meaning uh your love or my love and I see that, that I recognize you know that 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 looks a bit like a little bit like Collie and a little bit like Callach, a little bit like those, some of these words which I recognize in Irish but it's it has a very different semi-related meaning yeah. Uh, here and that's it is fascinating it, it, it sends me down uh wonderful wormholes 
yeah, I don't think you always have to to understand everything to enjoy it either. You know, I think there's a there's always a stage of reading a poem of, of really getting it. You know, um, and I'm I quite enjoy that. That's that stage is really underrated. The 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 point where you don't actually understand things, but you're having a nice time. Yeah, and I also just speaking personally, I like to read very slowly, and I like to kind of as a calming thing. Mm-hmm. I like poetry, which makes me read very slowly. I like having to reach for the dictionary. Um, maybe that makes me different from other readers, but I, you know, that's one of the things that poetry kind of does for me is it allows me to slow down, have a space where you can slow down. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, also you know, when you're writing poetry and people come up to you, I mean, one of the things is you're writing poetry in Scottish Gaelic, which is a you know a, a language under pressure. If you can put it kind of yes. no more dramatically than that. Mm-hmm. then, you know, you're reaching for all these words that are out of use or haven't been in regular use or maybe just people haven't don't know or whatever it happens to be. And one of the reasons you're doing that is because I, I'm writing to rhyme, so I need to I need to find a, a rhyme word, you know. Yes. But people have said to me, that, you know, I didn't know that word, but I like that word. I'm going to start using that word now. Mm. Um, so maybe, you know, in a small way that you can maybe bring things. You know, I'm not, I'm not making a big claim to this as, as one writer, you know, but maybe in this kind of exercise of bringing things into poetry, which is not like an everyday thing, but it's a, it's a special place for language. Maybe it can then find its way into the everyday language too. Mm. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's definitely something. And you, you mentioned you know, these words finding their way into the everyday language. One of your poems, and I know you, um, you, you do mention dictionaries a bit, which I am going to get back to. One of your poems is about, in the new collection, is about dandelions. Or as a title of dandelion, obviously it's about much more than that. But the um, the Irish word dandelion is is Kasher Vaughan. Yeah, that's the Scottish Gaelic is a bit prettier. It's um, Bjarne and Bridge. Bjarne and Bridge, which means something like um, Saint Bride's little gapped flower. Bride's little gapped flower. That's because Bjarne is a gap. So Bjarne and the little gapped one. Of St. Bride, Bjarne and Bridge. And it's in it's in Deneen's dictionary as well, you know. Um, mm. So, but I think I've seen to you before that one of the things that about this poem is really about is it's about since I've had children, I've had to learn all these new words for things that I didn't know before and didn't have any cause to need to know before, you know. Yes. And because my daughter would say to me things like, Igadi, J Gallicky, Dad, what's the Gallic for X, Y, or Z? And point mm-hmm. to this flower. And so I find myself racking my brains and trying to find you know the words for these things or looking them up and then that they make their way into the poem as mm. as bjarne and bridge is, is is the is the flower the beautiful flower but the flower that no one really pays any attention to is normally considered a weed you know yes um, but that's where that comes from that's fantastic because that is something we get so many i guess parents in in, in contact with the show who want to rediscover Irish so they can share it with their children and and then even even that just the actual like being able to I know from my father was able to recognize bird songs mm-hmm. and flowers that in the wouldn't always know the name for and the fact that, that this is a part of of Gaelic languages that is particularly uh, accessible because these names are so beautiful they're beautiful they're absolutely beautiful I mean one of my favorites I don't the, the book is called Fauvla which Irish mm-hmm. speaking we listeners will know means in bloom mm. and the whole first section of the the book is just flower poems and poems about trees and poems about fruit you know and i think the book's like a kind of a kind of an overgrown unruly garden you know 
um, of these of, of these poems. I mean, things like um, the Scottish Gaelic word for the flower we call a bluebell in English is brog nakuake, which is the cuckoo's shoe. The cuckoo's shoe. That's gorgeous. It is beautiful, isn't it? I mean, and there's all these kinds of things. And particularly, obviously, because we're talking about these languages, the, they're, these, they're words for the things that grow here. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, I'm really into all that, I'm really interested in all that. I'm really interested in finding, you know, the, the words for things and also just having to do with the chip with, with the kids is where the poems have come from, at least in the first mm-hmm. part of the book. Yeah, that's that's really something I know. There's um, there are these little like red flowers that I think I think they're probably like poppies, but not quite. But I always recognise them. I never know what the word is, and I know mm-hmm. they were te- technically weeds, but a weed is just like a, it's kind of like a uh, botanical loanword. It's just a, 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 a plant in the wrong place, or that's right, of what someone decided <laughs> to be in the wrong place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and some of them were very lovely. So you are the. Bard Vala Glasgow, the writer in residence, the poet, Gaelic poet in residence for the city of Glasgow. This is a, something that's been a long tradition of, but maybe a recent tradition of, but specifically for the Scots Gaelic language. That's right, yeah. How, how, how did this come about? I got a phone call one day um, last summer. I mean, I think partly what happened was I had written my first book of poems, Bea Ur, which is um, really a book of Glasgow love poems. And mm. um, that kind of brought my poems to the attention of the people who were looking for somebody who could occupy this role. It was a big kind of year for the for Gaelic in the city, 2019, because the Maud, which is I think the Scottish equivalent of the Arachtas, mm. um, was in town for the first time in I think 30 years or so. Um, and so there was a lots of kind of thinking about how as a city and as a Gaelic-speaking community in Glasgow we were going to, celebrate that um, and so I was asked to do this um, which was wonderful a wonderful kind of honour for me the other thing what they asked me to do was they asked me to to write three poems um, they didn't say you know what kind of poems or what subject the poems had to be um, so I was kind of it was left wide open to me but I had this understanding of you know I was going to have to do something that was connected to the city in some kind of meaningful way um, and that was a that was really it's quite a challenge for me because I'd never kind of had a, a civic commission like that before. I've always oh, yes. just written for joy, and a lot of my poems are very domestic and very, you know, very private in a way. So I had to sit and think: How am I going to write something that is kind of good enough for for this occasion, but also which is kind of meaningful to me and isn't just you know a bit of journalism and verse you know i really didn't want to do that because i make my living as a, as a journalist so i wanted to do something else yes and where i ended up with was i went right back to the kind of founding story of the city of glasgow which is about two saints saint mungo and saint enoch mm. and the story turns out i mean it's, it's, it's such an old story that it's a mythical you know it's not a historical story it's a mythical story yes. and what that story is really about is it's about a woman who is expelled from her home by her father because her father learned she's pregnant. So she is an unmarried um, single mother, a refugee. She's alone on, on a boat at sea and washes up on a new shore where she doesn't speak the language. And the child that she's carrying 
um, goes on to be St. Mungo, who will build the city of Glasgow. And I just looked at this stuff and I thought, how of today, how of this particular moment is this story? Yes, absolutely. That's what I was about to say. absolutely contemporary and urgent is this story? It also resonated with me. And one of the things I was conscious of is that Glasgow's got a massive Gaelic-speaking community. Glasgow has been, in, in Scotland, when speaking Gaelic, we call Glasgow Balamore Ningale, you know, the city what? of the Gales. Wow. And that's what we call it, you know, because really since the 19th century, since, you know, the Glasgow we know today happened because of Gaelic-speaking immigration and Irish-speaking immigration in the 19th century. Um, and there's a very, very big um, Gaelic-speaking community. There's a big Irish-speaking community as well in Glasgow, as, as we know. Mm, yes. Um, and But I was conscious that, you know, I was appointed as someone from an Irish and not a Scottish Gaelic background to this position. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how, how do I fit into this story, you know? And the, But it resonated with me as someone whose family came to Glasgow from Ireland, you know, um, in the 19th century. On one side, the other side of my family are still in Derry. And mm-hmm. so I thought the whole, the whole immigrant story was something that could resonate with me personally, as well as being something that, that would mean something to the Glasgow Gaelic community more widely, who are all, if we go back a few generations from somewhere else, but then in Glasgow, everyone's from somewhere else if you go back far enough, you know. Yeah. Um, and I couldn't stop. And this is one of the reasons why the book is late. Um, <laughs> the, the book was interrupted by the arrival of these poems because they asked me for three, but I couldn't stop, so I wrote 12. <laughs> and so this is a sonnet sequence in the second half of the book. And mm. I wrote the last one um, on the last day of, last, of 2019. Fantastic. And and you found that this, having the civic role as having a kind of the official a, a bard of the city, you, you, the engagement with the public was was a positive experience. Uh, the whole thing was been wonderful for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, I, I mean, I, I started writing the poems almost immediately. I think, you know, as a writer, they ask you to do lots of things. They ask you to to do things in public and, and everything else. But really, being a writer is about being alone writing. And but I got started pretty quick. And once I found that I could write in a way that, you know, about these subjects, which actually excited me, then everything became straightforward after that because I was, you know, when I was invited to read in places, then I would have new things that were relevant to read. So it's been wonderful and it meant that I've been able to take these poems to places that I wouldn't have been able to take them before. Um, mm-hmm. I also think it's a step forward for me because one of the things that it kind of pushed me into doing was not writing in my own voice. Yes. Uh, you know, and... I have done some some of this sort of thing before, but I always I don't think it matters too much if the reader thinks it's me or not in the poems. But I always thought it was me in the poems speaking, you know. Mm-hmm. But in the, these poems, I started writing in persona and personae, and that was wonderfully freeing, you know. Of course, to be able to write about things, say things that you couldn't say in your own voice, and and try and look at things in a way that you wouldn't have been able to look at them. Also, in our language as well, you know, like it kind of freed me up in terms of the breadth of the language I felt I could use. I could be a little bit more old fashioned in places mm. if I wanted to be and use kind of turns of phrase that might sound a little bit, you know, in my own voice, like a little bit too high or a little bit too pompous. Maybe I don't know because they belong to, you know, older registers of the language. But when I was writing in these voices, all of mm. a sudden that became acceptable to, at least to my ear, you know, um, and so you could really broaden out what you were doing for sure and, and, and i can see it for for a lot of poets particularly uh, poets of your generation who are um there's 
you know, like like every like every other kind of cultural movement, there are certain trends that are popular or that have gone up unpopular, and and there are things that where you might you might find that say there's a a move towards free verse in a, in a lot of um, or certain very performance performance driven kind of poetry is kind of quite popular, and you've you've chosen to use kind of maybe slightly older forms. Some people find the the structure of sonnets and alexandrines and and those other kind of uh, uh, forms actually to be quite freeing yeah i mean i think for me the other thing it does is just it just helps I me mean, i don't really know anything about painting but i kind of mm. imagine that one of the first things a painter has to do is to choose the canvas they're going to paint on and what the dimensions of the canvas are going to be yeah and a sonnet helps me because i know what space i'm working within um mm-hmm. But it's also just really about, you know, I think your taste as a writer are follow on from your taste as a reader. And I've always yes. loved poetry in, in straight form and in, in rhyming poetry. But certainly in, I mean, in Scottish Gaelic poetry, as it happens, free verse has been the kind of dominant form. Not, I mean, it, it's, things get increasingly various and rich and, and diverse. But there was a time when free verse was what everyone was doing, more or less. And it just wasn't going to work for me. Yes. Um, but I think that one of the advantages of, of writing in these kind of strict forms is that people's expectations change. You know, like, um, I think when you're reading a poem, and the trouble with free verse is that it looks or sounds too much like ordinary speech. And yes. therefore, if you use words or forms of the language which don't really sit well in ordinary speech, then that can trip people up. And, and people who, excuse me, People who write free, free verse well can use those effects and, and do that deliberately and can surprise and startle and, and, and do all that. Um, but I think that if you're writing in strict form, people's associations immediately change and they're not expecting it to sound like free like speech. They're expecting it to sound maybe more like song or even like prayer. I don't think that these are particularly religious poems, but I think you know, mm-hmm. that's one of the things that kind of can resonate with people. Um, and so that's good in a situation where if the language is under pressure, then it's, it's, it's a way of helping push back against that and allow yourself to reach for a wider range of language because the form seems to allow it. Absolutely. Um, something that I've noticed has been recurring in some of your poems is the idea of, of dictionaries turning up. Um, you mentioned you know, that um, best dreaming with you, not of you, uh, as, as they say in Catalonia, as one of your dictionaries and your, your new poems you mentioned about, again, about the dandelions looking for words. This is something that 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 seems to occur, and you've mentioned that maybe the the resources, the the lexicographical resources available to a Scots Gaelic speaker or writer, are different than those available to someone using Irish. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I'm not a professional linguist, but my my, mm. my kind of sense is that just that the written form of Scottish Gaelic is just less standardised and actually just less used, if we're if we're honest than mm-hmm. written Irish, um, standard written Irish. Um, which is not to say that spoken Scottish Gaelic is any richer than spoken Irish. I don't think that's true. It's just to mm. say that there are gaps in the written language through underuse. Um, yes. And when it comes to writing, especially when you're writing just in, just in Gaelic and not with anything else to help you out, um, we don't have a dictionary like the Waldress Dictionary, you know, a standard dictionary where you can just reach and say, um, you know, what's the word for this? I mean, I think that, you know, in, in 
Scottish Gaelic circles, if, if a conversation which starts with, what's the word for this, immediately becomes a discussion about, well, I would say this and he would say that and my granny would say something else. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure that happens in vernacular Irish circles too. But there's also in Ireland the option of, well, the, the word for this is just whatever the dictionary says it is. <laughs> you know, and in a way, as a writer, sometimes you want to get into all the, the, the possibilities, but sometimes you just want to know what the word is and move on. Hmm. Um, that's not an option we've got to right now in, in Scottish Gaelic. So I spend a lot of time with the dictionary, but that dictionary hmm. is um, Edward Dwelly's Scottish Gaelic dictionary, which is a wee bit like, I suppose, the Deneen of, 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 of Scottish Gaelic. It's a really rich resource full of all kinds of arcane and wonderful descriptions. And, and so it's not really a modern dictionary in the way we would now expect a dictionary to be, but it's a great yeah. treasure trove. Um, and I just think there's no way around it. I think that's where you've got to go if you're looking for, 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 for ways ahead. It's good, good to have a resource there. But as you say, I think that on one level, I suppose an authoritative dictionary can be great comfort to the pedant and stuff. It, was, it only really becomes a problem. It only becomes a problem when someone tells you that the, the, the version your granny uses is wrong or didn't exist. And uh, Indeed. Well, I know there's um, a lot of, there's been a lot of, a lot of weight has been added to the fact that Deneen didn't include the word crack in his dictionary. Oh, right, okay. And people have jumped to huge have jumped to massive conclusions by saying, oh, well, well, because Deneen didn't include crack, we can assume that it, the word had no existence prior to its appearance in uh, in O'Donnell's Dictionary in 1977 and therefore isn't a proper Irish word because we all know proper Irish were only only existed before the famine and, you know, God forbid languages evolve or take shape. Yeah, it's funny because some of my favourite words are are kind of relatively modern words, you know. Mm -hmm. um, just because of the, how beautiful they are. I mean, I, I love the Irish word for an aeroplane. Um, Echelon. Echelon, yeah. Yeah, Echelon. Partly because it sounds like the word for a feather. Um, yes. Although I know that it's not derived from that necessarily, but I love these kind of new man-made things. I think we've got this kind of prejudice sometimes against artificial things. I love things that are artificial, you know. I love things which are made mm. by human hands. Um, yeah. And I think that can be beautiful in language too. I mean, I'm, I, sometimes I think we can put too much emphasis on authenticity, mm. whatever that means, as opposed to on creativity and mm. on imagination. Um, I think, yeah, I, I I actually agree with you. I think there's there's something to be said for um, there's something to be said for crafts craftspersonship or craftsmanship and and how that comes into the forming of words and that they're aware of the of. And striking a balance between what what's what's consistent with the heritage and what is useful to a speaker it is a delicate craft. It serves to be respected. It shouldn't be treated as a as something that's tacky or artificial. Yeah, and if the alternative is to use an English word, then I'd rather use a new word. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in our vernacular speech in, in in Scotland, then more often than not, we would use an English word in in, in ordinary speech for lots yes. of things. Um, whereas actually, I, I would prefer. Not to do that, I think. Well, let's let's use the, the riches of the language and put old words to new uses, and you know, and it can be unfamiliar to people at first, but people get used to it. You know, um, I think I'm all for that sort of thing. And this is one of the this is one of the kind of the issues that constantly faces minority languages or um, kind of early languages that have that 
that interface, specifically the ones that interface with English. Um, like people, people, some people think it's like when they look at Welsh, I, the word for a, a microwave is pop ping and they say, well, that's, that's just um, some Welsh person said, I don't want to call it, the, I just don't want to stick the word microwave in an otherwise Welsh sentence. And other people can discuss this. And it's, I want, if it's sometimes with, Mono, when you're talk, dealing with monoglots, you feel like a minority language can't win because if you if you if you compose a new word, they say, "Well, that's 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 artificial, that's phony." Or if you just take the word, they say, "Ah, isn't it gas?" So you see all these English words popping up for anything that matters. It's um, it feels like the monoglots have it both ways, or they yeah. they, they demand it both ways. Yeah, and I just think it's none of their business, really. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's actually a great point. I, you know, I, I just think it's none of their business. It's not for them. You yeah. Know? It's not a conversation that they need to be part of tomorrow. <laughs> you know, these are this is our language that we're using and we'll use it mm. as suits us. <laughs> and, you know, mm. we don't need to look over our shoulders and, you know, get the mm. approval of those who, for whatever reason, aren't speaking English or aren't speaking Gaelic. You know, if they want to come and join in, then that's great. But I don't think we need to be concerned about what they think. I think we can just mm. leave them to it, you know. Maybe I'm too blasé about these things, but that would be a nice <laughs> starting point. Definitely. And before we wrap up, uh, we'd love to ask all our guests what their favourite Irish word is. But if you have a favourite favorite Scots Gaelic word instead, or as well, that would be wonderful too. Well, you know, I think my favourite Irish word at the moment is is Echelon, just because I think mm-hmm. it's, I love the, the way it sounds. I love the, the, the middle consonant. I love the, the, the newness of it and the way it mm-hmm. echoes the word for a feather. Um, for the moment, my favourite Scottish Gaelic word is Bjarne and Bridget for yeah. for a dandelion, which I just think is so beautiful and so of this place that we live in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it just appeals to my imagination that something so small and so unvalued, people are usually pulling them up as fast as they can, should have this, not just this beautiful name, but this holy, it's got a saintly name. Yes. And so, you know, value in small things. That's fantastic. Now, where can people find your work and find out more about you? So the Gaelic Books Council um, in Glasgow, if you Google Gaelic Books Council, um, they have all of what's in print really in, in Gaelic now. And both of my books are there. The third one will be, will be there soon. There's also um, some poems on the website of the Scottish Poetry Library um, and You'll find some more information about me and some and, and some poems there. Hoping the new book will be out in the autumn. Um, and before then, I'm hoping that we might you might see some poems in core. Um, I'm hoping that some poems from the new book will appear in core, either to coincide with or just before the publication of the book, so people can can you know have a look in core and find a few things there. Fantastic. We will look forward to those and we will we will uh, share them uh, on all our social media channels prior to their release. And we'll put the, those contact details in the show notes as well. Nell Gallagher, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. So until the next time, Slangaval. Thank you so much to Nell Gallagher for being such a brilliant guest really interesting stuff. I really enjoyed making this episode today and I hope you enjoyed listening to it. Mother Folklore comes out every Friday in the Hest of Podcast Network. Thank you so much to Brian for doing the production work and thank you to Kirsten Shield for doing the artwork. The production of Mother Folklore is made possible 
by support on Patreon, Patreon members, in addition to keeping Motherfucker going, get access to certain bonus content. This very week, Patreon supporters got to see a live episode in which I chatted with Oral Nicole, the guest from one of our most popular episodes last year. They were able to submit questions, participate in it, and those Patreons who weren't able to attend live got to have that whole chat released as a bonus podcast episode. And if you're signed up on Patreon now yourself, you can get access to that as well as next week's one. In coming weeks, we're going to be revisiting uh, former guests such as Neve Lear, Carl Kinsla, and many others. And if you are supporters on Patreon, you can participate in those as well as many other advantages. You can contact the show at motherfucklerheadstuff.org. You can contact Motherfucklore on Twitter, that's our rotation creation account, or me at the, at the Irish Four. Until the next time, Slung Fall. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Weather is beautiful. Perfect.